0: My privilege to bring to you the Word of God today. And we continue to look through the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 9. I would encourage you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 9. We'll look at verses 8 to 17, this section. Can God be trusted? Genesis chapter 9, verse 8 says, Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you, and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all the that comes out of the ark of every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you in all flesh shall never again be cut off by the waters of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth and it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water be become a flood to destroy all flesh then the bow is in the when the bow is in the cloud Then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray your blessing upon the reading of your word. We pray the blessing upon the expounding of your word. May we get... As we studied in Sunday school today, the true meaning of the text, understanding the significance of what is happening here. Pray for clarity. Pray for understanding. Thank you for your precious word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians, uh, Christianity, all of us that have believe in faith in Jesus Christ, we have put... Um, our Christian life is based upon one thing. We, we've put all of our eggs in one basket, we might say. Uh, and if that one thing fails, then, then the foundation of everything that we believe comes crashing to the ground. And that one thing is that God is a God that keeps His promise. He is a promise keeping God. Now, we make promises... We can at least try to make promises, but we really can't control the outcome. I mean we can be genuine and sincere when we make the promise, and we can try really hard and, and be and try to fulfill the promise and, and be faithful to that, but we're limited as human beings to the um, to the circumstances of our life. That's just the way we are. We are dependent creatures. Uh, We can't control our world around us. We can't control the the weather, the transportation. We can't control our own health. And it is virtually impossible for us to guarantee anything, really, when it comes down to it. And we use statements like uh, like, uh, guaranteed next day delivery. And I think, wow, can you really say that? Can you really say guaranteed or satisfaction guaranteed? And of course, they have to add, or your money back. Because they can't really guarantee. And so we have to have an attitude like we see uh, that James is, is uh, conveying to us. that We can just say, well, the best to my ability. The best that I can do. Or, or have the attitude that, that James spells out in James chapter 4. In the passage that you see up there. Come now, you who say today and tomorrow we will go in such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're limited. He says, you're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this and that. So you see the, the shift there. We are dependent upon the Lord. Um, and then he goes on, James goes on to say, if if you're if you're not dependent upon the Lord, then you're just arrogant. And he, he lays that and makes that very, very clear. We are dependent creatures upon God. Now, God doesn't have any problem keeping his promise, but but we do. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't try to keep our promises. We, we're we not just victims of our own circumstances. We're not just pinball machines, like a pinball in a machine, just, just being uh, bounced around from one place to the other place, from one emergency to the other emergency. There has to be some stability to our, our life. That's not the Christian life at all. There's order and faithfulness to our life, and we have to be careful with our words, careful with our commitments, and Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So so we don't have to swear. I swear this is going to happen. or We don't have to, to promise, over promise things. Because we really can't do that. We just say we depend upon the Lord. Now, God, on the other hand, like I said, he is a God who keeps his promise. And, and there's... No problem with him keeping a promise. In fact, only he can really do that. He's the only one that can guarantee that he will keep his promise. In fact, we see in Scripture that his not one word will, will pass away. Everything that he says is going to, to be fulfilled. You will accomplish what he, it sets out to accomplish. Job says nobody can thwart the plan of God. Nobody's big enough to stop God. Nobody can restrain him. No one can keep him from keeping his promise. He is a promise-keeping God. Now, we, we rest all of our theology on that one point, that he will keep his promise. That he is a promise-keeping God. So we come to our passage. We've been looking, Genesis chapter uh, 6 to 9, at, at Noah's flood. And, and so often we look at it as just like a, a children's story. But if we just look at it as a simple children's story, we're going we're, we're to fail to see the significance of this passage. We're going to fail to see the, the, the um, authorial intent here. What, what's the point here? If it's just a nice little story about how God saves Noah and God puts a little rainbow in the sky, we're going to miss the whole point. It's a lot more serious than we think. God is dealing with the sinfulness of man. In fact, the reality of this passage, these past three chapters, is that God has unleashed His wrath upon man because of man's sinfulness. and He has to punish that sin. And this is a sobering thing. This isn't just for children. This isn't a little children's storybook. And last week we saw that that sin was so bad... That the flood couldn't even squelch it. In fact, the sinful heart of man came walking out of that ark. It it crossed the flood. And what we saw then last week was that we, as sinful men, the only thing we can do is try to restrain that sinful heart. And we saw last week the establishment of of government for the purpose of uh, holding men accountable. We have to hold each other accountable for our sinfulness. But even at that. I mean you, you can't really restrain the sinfulness of the heart. There's no amount of laws that we can make in the United States to, to govern the heart. It's a spiritual problem, right? We know the sinfulness. We know our own sinfulness. It's a spiritual problem. We need a new heart. That's what we see in scripture. A changed heart. Of being a, a spiritual reconditioning, the Bible calls it of being born again that 's what Christ called it being born again, because at the core man is sinful, we sin every day now, how does God deal with that? in fact, is he going to it kind of raises the question here? Is he going to have to destroy the earth every Every thousand years you're gonna have to send a flood down and and just destroy, wipe everyone out, because we know that he cannot live in a we cannot he cannot just allow sinful man to continue to live in his world. What we see in this passage is the wonderful wonderful reminder of the character of God. We see that God is reassuring Noah in this passage that he will never destroy the the world, the earth, <clears throat> with water again, and that he will, uh, that Noah and his family will never have to go through this again. It's a wonderful reminder. It's it's reassuring, and that's what's happening here. Is Noah's being reassured? Now, we have to we have to process this though, and that's what I, I want you to think about. How does a holy and wrathful God, how does He allow His universe to be filled with sinful man, sinful people all the time, every day? Sinful. How do we think through this? How how do we balance the the wrath of God and and face our own reality? It it could be of our own sinfulness. It it could be paralyzing. We could be so fearful of, of God And so I think this passage addresses that and allows us and helps us to think through this. What we will see in this passage is essentially is that God God graciously commits himself to long suffering. Now think about that term, long suffering. The focus of this passage here is the the Noahic covenant. So we're going to look at the Noahic covenant, this covenant between God and and Noah, and then the, the implications for us today this passage, we see elements of, of a covenant. Now, a covenant was a... Really, we see it in every culture. Back in even the Babylonian culture, the Assyrian culture, the Egyptian culture. All those ancient cultures, they all had... There, there was either land grants or peace or war. Uh, you know, There were covenants between nations and some individuals. And a covenant is essentially just an agreement... A binding agreement between two parties. It would be legally binding most of the time. And it could be between friends. It could be between two warring nations uh, trying to establish peace. It could be a economic uh, for economic reasons. <clears throat> we would have today something similar. We would have NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement. These North American uh, countries get together and say, okay, we're going to have an agreement here of trade. Or that would be on a national level. On an individual level, we would see marriage. Marriage is just a covenant between two people. It could be between two business partners. It could be a a, a, like NATO would be agreeing nations that would come together. Now, Paul reminds us as believers, we have to be very careful. We cannot join ourselves. We cannot be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so we have to be very careful about who we partner with. You can't partner with somebody that's going two completely different directions. One partner trying to just glorify God with the company and and somebody that's not glorifying God at all. It's just not going to work. So what we have here is a a covenant, the Noahic covenant. And so I want you to see this here. First of all, we see the extent of the covenant. You see the first point here, the extent of the Noahic covenant. Now it starts in verse 8. We're just going to quickly move through these These passages, and then we'll look at the significance of it. Verse 8 says, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself... Now there's a key element. God is the one that initiates this covenant. It's a unidirectional or unilateral covenant. It's coming from God. He says, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with all your descendants and with every living creature that is with you the birds the cattle every beast of the earth that is with you all that comes out of the ark and every even every beast of the earth so what you have is the extent of the covenant is God himself he is establishing his covenant with with Noah Noah's sons his his families Noah's descendants that would even reach all, all the way up to today we're all descendants of Noah and then in verse 10 we see that it's to all the creatures of the earth as well all flesh he said now generally a covenant is committed or uh, committed to by with one person that's what we see in scripture it's it's one person that makes this covenant or the two people agree but there's other people that take advantage of that covenant. And in this case we see it's a covenant with Noah but it's extended out to Noah's generation or Noah's uh, descendants. Anyone who is in Noah or out of Noah that would be that's where the safety is. Those who are in Noah are in this Noahic covenant and they're protected. God is, is uh, saying, I'm going to protect you. I'm not going to destroy the earth again with, with water. He's going to protect you. And that's kind of a, a picture, if you will, kind of a type, if you will, of Christ. Those who are in Christ, there's safety. So you, you see a, a little bit of that, and that's elements of a covenant there. So the extent of the covenant is, is essentially all humans and all flesh, all animals that come upon the earth. That have been born into this world. Now we see the terms of the covenant. Here in verse 11. I establish my covenant with you. And all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Now there's a few key elements here that you need to know. It's a negative. God is saying here's something I'm not going to do. I'm not going to destroy the earth with, with water again. So it's in a negative, something that God is not going to do. Then it's stated a couple of times, different ways, just a, a little bit different slant, just for clarity. And, and then it's very specific here. It's not going to destroy the whole earth, the globe. That's, that's all of the people with water. And those are two key elements there. And I think they point to some someday he will destroy the earth, but it's not going to be with with water. Um, and we see this; it's kind of pointing to a, a futuristic event, something that's going to happen. And we see this in Second Peter chapter three, verses ten to eleven. Peter says this; he reminds us of this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with the roar. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and all its works will be burned up. Since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way. What sort of people ought we to be in holiness and godliness? And then we see in the book of Revelation. We see actually this taken place here in Revelation chapter 21. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. So at the beginning of chapter 21, we see that there's this new heaven and new earth. And he has burned up the old heaven and old earth. Now he's starting all over. But that was with fire and not not with water. The earth needed to be cleansed. There had to be a, a, a refining. In fact, at the end of Uh, Verse uh, chapter 21, Revelation. It says, And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall come into it. That's the whole new heaven and earth, and it's going to be pure, only filled with righteous people. And that's amazing. There's a final purging coming on the earth. Again, not by water, but by fire. So this covenant with Noah is very specific in that it will be with no more with water and it will not be a global flood. We have floods today, but it, they're not global in, in their aspects here. But I love the way Peter applies this. He says, what what sort of people are, are we to be? If we know that everything is going to, to burn up and, and we kind of see the evidence of that now, things are kind of turning into a... a, a a cracker box, if you will. A matchbox. Everything is becoming a little bit more intense with heat. They say global warming. And, and and all God would have to do is strike a match. And it could it could just go up in flames, Peter is saying. Now, what are we to, to do with that? He just says, now, don't invest in the material world. Invest in the spiritual realm. That's where the emphasis of the Christian life is to be. Since all of these things are going to be destroyed... The emphasis of our life is upon the spiritual. The spiritual realm. Number three, we have a sign then. Not all the covenants have a sign, but this one has a sign. And it's the rainbow. Look at verse 12 through 16. Then God said, this is the sign of the covenant, which I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. And I... Set my bow, this rainbow that we see today in the cloud. And it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And that shall come about when I bring a cloud. Now God's in control of the clouds as well. When he brings a cloud over the earth. That the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you. And every living creature and all flesh. And I will never again... Are never, and again, shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. This is the bow, or when the bow is in the clouds, then I will look upon it. I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the flesh that is on the earth. So we see a, a sign, a rainbow, a sign. God's, uh, God's promise here to never destroy the earth. And he says, when you look up, we see that rainbow. We, we're looking from our perspective. We look up and we see it. We, we can remember God's promise. God's looking down and he says, I will remember that promise. Now, it's not that God forgets or anything like that. But he's trying to use terms that, we can, uh, that, that he can communicate and understand what, what is happening there. But it's essentially just a promise. And note it, it's an everlasting promise. This is, this is always going to be in place. So, this, is, this rainbow is a, an icon, it's a sign. And today, I'm afraid that this, this has been hijacked. This sign, this is Gay Pride Month, from what I understand. And uh, their symbol is the, the rainbow. And Satan would love to change the significance of that, and he's attempting to do that. It no longer means God's promise, but it's, it's talking about some kind of sexual diversity in our sexuality, and all the colors of the rainbow, and, and all of those elements would, uh, would come together, and we can, we can all be one, we can all be unified, even though we're all different. And again, Satan's just trying to hijack this symbol, this icon that God has, God has taken, and then you see that God has made for us. And then you see in verse seventeen, you see the um, the covenant ratified here. There's a, a restatement, and, and here's what's going to happen. This is this is kind of sealing the deal in verse seventeen. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So you see, the whole passage is dealing with this covenant. The Noahic covenant. And what we see is a, a unilateral, one direction. God speaking to Noah. And Noah doesn't have to do anything. There's no, uh, no contribution that Noah has to give, that his children has to give anyone and it's made as an everlasting covenant by this God who does not lie. A God who has all power and a God who cannot be stopped. We need to keep those things in mind. Really, it's just a promise. And we promise our children a lot of things. And we fulfill, hopefully, most of them. And we promise our children we're going to take them to care ones this summer. Or I could promise my wife, well, we're going to go out to eat. But again, I, I have trouble fulfilling my promise, guaranteeing my promise. But God has no, no trouble filling his promise. This is a promise that will hold. This is a guarantee. In fact, it's, it's, it's beyond that. He's established a, a covenant and, and he's, given, he's given a sign. Here's what the sign is and it's a, a guarantee. Now this is just the first of five covenants that we see in Scripture. Five covenants. Actually, there's six, but and that sixth one is the. I, I, it's the no, It's the Mosaic covenant, but it's a, a bilateral covenant. Now I want you to know the difference. A bilateral covenant is one that that is uh, an agreement between God and people, and that's what was happening here. It's an agreement between. Uh, Moses is leading these people out, and God says, "Look, if you uh, will uh, obey me, I will bless you. But if you do not obey me, the covenant is broken, and I will uh, I will curse you, and I will scatter you. And that's exactly what happened. They were not obedient. It was a bilateral covenant, and they broke their promise. They could not fulfill their promise, but God could fulfill His promise. That's the Mosaic covenant." Now, you have in Scripture, you have five everlasting covenants. And I believe that's the key term. Five everlasting covenants. You see the Noahic covenant, verse 11, we just read. There's another one, the Mosaic covenant. And this is in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 7. This is God talking to Abraham or Abram at the time. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant, an everlasting covenant. God makes a covenant with Abraham and he says it's going to be an everlasting covenant to be to be God to you. And to your descendants after you that 's the Jewish people, God is covenanting himself with abraham he says i 'm going to make a covenant between us, and forever i 'm going to be your God, and you 're going to be my people that 's a strong covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, but then you have the the priestly covenant. now, this is one of my favorites in numbers chapter twenty five we see that God had had uh, Cursed Israel because they were, um, uh, they had set a plague on Israel, basically killed 24,000 people because they were taking wives from the Moabite people and bringing them in uh, and, and uh, having affairs with these, with these women. And there was one man who saw what was going on, everybody else saw what was going on, but there was one man named Phinehas, and here's what Phinehas did. In Numbers chapter 25 and verse 7, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, so this would be Aaron's grandson, essentially, he saw this, he saw this man, he goes out, takes this woman, this Moabite woman, brings, him into, brings her into the camp, and into his tent he arose, says, from the midst of the congregation, everybody sees this, and he took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel, and into the tent and pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague of plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were twenty-four thousand. This man had the courage to stand up and say, I see what needs to happen here. We've got to stop this sinfulness. And he takes he takes the spear and Uh, this man who's having an affair, he just kills them both. That's a pretty gruesome story. But look at God's reaction to this in the next verse, in verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, just make sure you get the right person, the priest, Aaron was the priestly line. so, So now he's making a clarification here. Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath. I'm sorry, Phinehas uh, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he has he was jealous for my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. He was jealous essentially for the glory of God. And Phinehas takes a. A spirit, and he does what needed to be done for the glory of God. He loved what God loved and hated what God hated. And he took and he did something about it. And so here's the here's the covenant, verse 12. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace. So God is making a covenant with Phinehas. I give him a covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him. So in the priestly role, it's going to be his line that's going to be a priest forever. In fact, we could tie that lineage to Christ himself, who is going to be a priest forever. Our high priest. A covenant of perpetual priesthood, it says. Perpetual an everlasting. An endless covenant. Because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. Man, oh man. To to get the God's attention in this way, to stand for righteousness, to to get a, a covenant with God, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Let me give you a couple more. You have the Davidic covenant in Samuel, Second uh, Samuel, chapter twenty three, verse five. It says, "Truly is not my house so with God." For he has made a, an everlasting covenant with me. David recognized. And there's this time that God comes to David and establishes a covenant with him. That he will have a, 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 his, one of his descendants on the throne. And that it's going to be forever. And again, pointing to Christ. And then in Jeremiah chapter 23. You have in chapter 23 and verse 39 and 40. You have the new covenant. Now Note those, those five covenants. Again, this is an everlasting covenant. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 39 says this I will give them one heart and one way, that's one way of life, that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant. Now, there's our key term an everlasting covenant. With them that I will not turn away from them to do them good and I'll put the fear of me in their heart. Now there's the key. I'm gonna, I'm gonna change their heart from the inside out that they're gonna have a love for me and a fear for me that they're going to obey. It says the heart so that they will not turn away from me. They're going to be obedient to me. It's the new covenant. Now, notice that this is, this is futuristic. This hasn't happened. He said, I will do this. And it's toward Israel. So, this is why I believe that God has a future for Israel. Because this has not happened to national Israel yet. They rejected their Messiah. And what happened then, in Romans chapter 11, we see that God has put them on the shelf and is now using the church. And, and look at this. He has given the, the church the privilege Of receiving the new covenant before Israel does. And and that's what we see. A new covenant in the blood of Christ. Now someday I believe he's going to pull Israel off the shelf. And use Israel and reestablish this. He's going to change their heart. Someday they will see who the true Messiah is. And they're going to change. And national Israel or as a nation. Israel is going to see their Messiah and accept him. And it will be in the blood of Christ. The the new covenant. That's where we are today. We're under this new covenant in Christ. So you you see the way covenants work there. You see the the context of Scripture concerning covenants. We looked at the Noahic covenant. That's what we're looking at here. That God has made a promise to not destroy the earth with the globe. With water. With water. You say, well, why does God have to promise, right? I mean, if every word is going to be completely fulfilled, 100% uh, reliable, every word that he says is reliable, why does he have to promise? Why does he have to make a, a covenant here? And, and I'm, we need to ask that question. I want you to ask that question in your own mind. Why do this? Why a covenant? Why such a big deal of, of this thing? It's not for God's sake. It's for the the sake of us. Of His people. Because we're the ones to benefit here. Because it brings about a peace within our own heart. A peace within our own heart. that Knowing that God has has made a a covenant here. That He is a, a good God. This brings comfort to our heart. He is a God to be feared, yes... But yet we can trust his word. And I think that's the case here. I think that's what's going on in this passage. So how do we, how do we see this Noahic covenant? What should we do with this? Why such a big deal? That God is not going to destroy the world with water again. And how do we, how do we think through this? I think the key is here is that we need to understand what's happening every single day of our life. Every single day since creation began, or no, since the fall of man, till today, every single day, what's happening? There's a few things that's happening. Number one, every single day, man sins. Every single day. Now think about that. If you just sin one time a day, just with your thought, just nothing big, you're not robbing banks, you're not killing people, but just with your mind, you you sin, have sinful thoughts, sinful motives, sin in just one way, just one way. That's 3,000 sins, 3,650 sins a year. Now, you, you multiply that with the 8 billion people that we have on the earth today, and you think, how many sins? Eight billion sins. That's just if everybody commits one sin. And that sin is just bombarding God every single day. Number two, the wrath of God is building every day. He gets madder and madder and madder. More angry every day. But also, probably every day, I don't, can't guarantee this, but probably every day, somewhere on the globe, there's a, a rainbow somewhere. And God is remembering that promise. So here's what's happening. In Psalm chapter 7 verse 1. God is a righteous judge. And a God who feels indignation every day. That's anger every day. In John chapter 3 verse 36. He says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God. Remains on him. God is angry with the sinful every day. Every day. And that wrath just sits on like like a cloud. Like a heavy burden. His wrath, his anger is on them. Why, why is he so angry? Romans chapter 2 verse 5 through 8 says this. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart. You are, you are storing up wrath for yourself. In the day of wrath, now I want you to see that picture. Every day, you're going to the store. You're buying that. You're bringing that home. And you're putting in a special place that's just storing it up, and it's just building up. That's talking about God's wrath. Every time you sin, you're bringing that home. You're bringing that, putting, putting that sin. Every time you're not repentant, you're storing that sin, and God's wrath is just being built up. It says in the for the day of wrath, and Revelation in the. Righteous judgment, because God is a righteous judge, he is going to rightly judge someday, who will render to his, to each person according to his deeds. Those who are, who by perseverance in doing good, seeking for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, that's what they're promised, is eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, Wrath and indignation. That's what they're gonna receive. So it's building up, building up. Every, every sin, just, just piling on top of each other. Every day, every day. Billions of sin. Now you tell me, why would God not destroy the earth? Just, just give it a week. And you have sin upon sin upon sin. Billions and billions of sin. Sin uh, from, from the heart of man. Every day. Billions. And those sins are just bombarding God. Bombarding. Have you ever fallen into a cactus plant? It's just little tiny little uh, barbs that, that poke you. But there's a lot of them. And it hurts. Every day. Every day. Being bombarded with these sins of man. The sinfulness of man. Now let's put ourselves in Noah's place. Because I want you to think about this. This is the first time. I mean, Noah's, Noah's never seen the wrath of God. To this degree. He's, he's seen God's patience. And he's seen God is grace. He's a God of grace. And he's seen his kindness. And he's seen his, his uh, love. But now he walks out of that ark. And he sees the devastation. He sees the effects of the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Noah and his family. They see the wreckage. Most of it is probably swallowed up by mud. But they can see little bits and pieces of civilization. Where it used to be. And they see the the devastation of God's wrath has just been poured out. They see His power. Unleashed in this flood. You see all the evidence around him. And Noah begins to think in his own heart. He knows. I'm a sinful man. He knows the sinfulness of man. He knows the inclination of his own heart. He's probably seen the sinfulness in in his own children. And he's thinking. Building up of, of God's wrath. He's thinking. God is a wrathful God. We will never survive. He is going to do this again he will he will just uh, he will just destroy us again, and his thinking might be something like we see in uh, Nahum chapter one I want you to read I want you to uh, follow this with me Nahum chapter one verse two, because Nahum I think saw the same kind of thing he says this: a jealous and avenging God is the Lord, the Lord is avenging and wrathful the Lord takes vengeance on his Avenge, uh, adversaries. And he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. Notice that. A little ray of hope. And he's great in power. Middle verse 3. And the Lord will be uh, by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way. In clouds are the dust of his, beneath his feet? He rebukes the sea and makes it makes it dry. He dries up the rivers Bashan and Carmel wither. The blue blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake before because of him, and on the hills, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. That's that's kind of. Uh, Reminiscent of the, the flood, the, the earth just upheaving, uh, water coming up out of the, the ground like it did. Kind of just, just glimpses of what may be going on in Nahum's mind here. The world, all the inhabitants in it. And here's the question, building up to this one question. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can stand before The wrathfulness of God. The indignation of God. The anger of God. Who can endure the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire. And the rocks are broken by Him. I think Nahum saw the same thing. That that Noah saw. And it could have struck fear. In Noah's mind and heart. Thinking can God truly be trusted? Isn't He just going to fly off the handle and just do this again? Is he, uh, is he just going to get angry? I mean, just give it a week and He's going to do the same thing. But we see what we see here in this covenant with Noah is that God is covenanting Himself, He is committing Himself to long suffering. To, to enduring the, the pinpricks of all of man's sinfulness. Billions of sin every day coming up to him, bombarding him every day. He's committing himself to long suffering. I will suffer with being slow to anger, some of the verses say. And it's part of, part of his character. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, it says, Then the Lord passed by. This is when God was passing by. Moses, and he says, "In front of him, and proclaim the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, literally, literally long suffering." And we don't even think about God's suffering, do we? We think he he's just up there, pie in the sky, but he is suffering long. David said in Psalm eighty-six fifteen, he says, "But you, O Lord." are a God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abundant in in loving kindness. Noah, he looks at the devastation. He he sees what God can do, and rightfully so. He's scared, but he has to trust the promise of God. What does God say? It, It all comes down to this, He promised. This this covenant. And every time we look up at the rainbow, we can know God is looking down and He sees that rainbow. And His hand is being held back. He's being gracious. He is enduring the suffering of our sinfulness. And what we do with that is we take comfort in our own heart. We see that rainbow. We say, God, thank You for enduring. Thank You for Your patience with us. And then just by application then, what do we do? We have to be patient with one another. We see God's patience with us and we think, Oh Lord, help us to be patient with other people. Help us to endure. Help us to be long-suffering. Help us to forgive. Help us to live with each other with, with some patience, with some love. God is the perfect example of that. And I thank the Lord. I thank the Lord. Because we fear God. Rightfully so, because He is a God to be feared. He can unleash His wrath upon us any time and be justified with it. But yet, He is a promise-keeping God. He is a promise-keeping God. And for us, folks, those who are in Christ, He's promised salvation. And And we rest on that promise. It's a commitment to God from God to us. We rest on the promises of God. And we take comfort like like Noah. Just take comfort. Oh Lord, I know I see the sinfulness of my heart and the sinfulness of my family. And I I know we deserve death. But Lord, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your covenant. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. For your patience with us. Even this, this morning. It's just the, the first little bit of this day. You have been patient. You have not destroyed this world yet. And we thank you. Lord. I pray that we would recognize your hand. We would recognize your loving kindness. Your long suffering with us. And may it, may it break us. May it cause us a compassion for other people. But may it, may it humble us before You. So that we live in reverence and awe. Respect. Knowing that You are bearing the brunt of our sinfulness. You're enduring. You're suffering. Lord, thank You for that. And then, Lord, it points to the cross. That someday, someday all of this will come to an end. We thank you, Lord, for that because of the suffering of Christ and what he endured on the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.